Hello and welcome to this podcast on tenant insolvency produced for the Association of Real Estate Funds. Today we're going to be talking about what a landlord might be able to do if one of its tenants stops paying rent or goes into an insolvency process. I'm Sarah Walker, a partner in the real estate team at Travers Smith. I'm joined by Kirsty Emery, a senior associate in the restructuring and insolvency team at Travers Smith, and also by Mark Armstrong, a partner in CMS's Edinburgh-based dispute resolution team, who is going to give us some thoughts as we go along as to how the position would be different in Scotland. So first of all, hi both, and thank you very much for joining. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. Hi, Sarah. No problem. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So we're going to start off with a tenant of commercial premises who fails to pay rent, but is not in a formal insolvency procedure. We're going to be focusing today on corporate tenants of commercial property. The position will, of course, be different if the tenant of the property is an individual or if the property is used for residential purposes. Where there's been non-payment of rent, there are a few things that a landlord could do to either seek to get its property back or to get the rent paid. Before taking formal action, the landlord should establish the reasons for non-payment and also, therefore, its own strategy. It may be possible, for instance, to enter into a consensual arrangement with the tenant in relation to the payment of the arrears if the landlord sees a longer-term benefit. However, if that doesn't work to get the rent paid, then the landlord might wish to, to take more formal action. The route taken will depend on the landlord's strategy and its views of the tenant's prospects. If the landlord wants to take the property back and this can't be achieved by consensual arrangement, so by that I mean the parties entering into a surrender of the lease, under English law the primary way to achieve this is through forfeiture. This is the right of the landlord to prematurely terminate the lease as a result of certain specified events of default by the tenant that is set out in the lease. Forfeiture is a formal legal process and it is essential to obtain legal advice to implement any forfeiture strategy. It's also important that a landlord acts swiftly if it wishes to forfeit a lease. Delay, along with other actions that reinforce the existence of the lease, can be treated by a court as a waiver of the landlord's ability to forfeit. For this reason, we do recommend speaking to a lawyer before any contact is made with the tenant. So you've got to the point of serving forfeiture notice, but unfortunately that's not the end of the story when it comes to to, to forfeiture. It's an equitable remedy and the tenant is entitled to apply to court for relief um, or alternatively a tenant might seek to establish that the circumstances giving rise to the forfeiture action did not actually occur or that due process has not been followed. A court has wide discretion as to whether to grant a tenant relief from forfeiture but as a minimum, it usually requires the tenant to remedy the outstanding proven breaches of lease and to pay the landlord's reasonable costs. So whilst forfeiture can be a very useful tool to encourage compliance with these terms, unfortunately, if the tenant does dispute the landlord's forfeiture action, it can take months or even years to conclude. That obviously will mean a delay in terms of the landlord getting its property back. Applications can be made to court to expedite timeframes, but even an expedited process would take months. Mark, I understand that there are some very similar provisions under Scottish law to forfeit in the form of irritancy. And I just might, um, wondered, would you mind telling us a bit about irritancy and what the key differences are to forfeiture south of the border? Thanks, Sarah. Yes, that's right. Irritancy is the process by which leases are brought to an end by a landlord for tenant breach in Scotland. Um, it can be used for any breach, but it's most often used when a tenant is in arrears. The process involves serving a notice outlining the breach and providing a reasonable period for it to be remedied, failing which the landlord may, but is not required, to terminate the lease. 
The reasonable period for arrears is 14 days and that's contained in the statute. If the arrears are not paid within that period, the landlord can terminate the lease. Um, there is no equivalent process for relief in those circumstances though, so the tenant must take action to deal with the arrears within the irritancy period if it wants to avoid that termination. Oh, thanks very much. So the Scottish process is a little bit more straightforward, albeit a very uh, similar concept, uh, it sounds. Um, so far then, we've talked about the landlord taking steps to take the property back, but of course it might be the case that the landlord is content with the tenant remaining in situ, but obviously still wants to take action to get its rent arrears repaid. So there are a few routes that the landlord could take to get its rent arrears repaid, um, which I'll run through briefly now. So those include drawing down on a rent deposit deed if there is one in place. The terms of the rent deposit deed obviously will need to be reviewed to make sure that this is available, although normally rent deposits do give a landlord a right to draw down on the amount of unpaid rent. Sometimes that's subject to notifying the tenant first, and that often triggers an immediate obligation on the tenant to top up the deposit to the value of the amount drawn. Ordinarily, rent deposits specify that the use of the deposit sum is without prejudice to any other rights and remedies that a landlord has to pursue a tenant for breach. And so this self-help remedy can often be used alongside other enforcement action. The landlord could also claim against a guarantor or a former tenant if a guarantee is being given by a previous tenant on assignment. This is always subject to the terms of the guarantee that's been given and certain notices do need to be served in the case of former tenants to ensure that the right to recover arrears is protected at law. Thirdly, the landlord could issue court proceedings, of course, to recover the rent as a debt claim. Um, as ever with the court system in England and Wales, the process for this can be lengthy and can take several months for the court to schedule a hearing, leaving the landlord with the arrears outstanding for this period. Although it's worth noting normally under lease terms, um, interest accrues on the arrears from the date the sums were due until their date of payment. Finally, we have to mention the landlord could also use the commercial rent arrears recovery procedure to recover unpaid rent that replaced the previous doctrine of distress back in 2014. There are a number of conditions and procedural steps to be followed by the landlord, including the requirement for an enforcement agent to serve notice on the tenant. If the tenant fails to pay the rent within the prescribed time frame in the notice, which must be seven clear days, the enforcement agent can enter the relevant premises and essentially take control over certain goods that are located there with a view to selling those at auction. This process is only available for principal rent arrears. It's not available for arrears of other types of rent, such as service charge and insurance. So it might not be worth pursuing if there is substantial wider forms of non-payment. But turning now to you, Kirsty, I wonder what else might a landlord be able to do at this stage from an insolvency law perspective? So the landlord could serve a statutory demand for non-payment of rent. This is a formal notice that provides the tenant with 21 days to pay the outstanding amounts. So this could save the costs of going to court to recover the rent and the timeframes that you mentioned involved in that. Non-payment following this period is evidence of the tenant's inability to pay its debts as they fooled you. So companies often take the receipt of statutory demands quite seriously as they're typically used as a pre-step to serving a winding up petition. A winding up petition is a petition to court for the company to be wound up, which is another word for liquidated, uh, on the basis that the company is unable to pay its debts. So this would be an option available to landlords if they serve a statutory demand and the tenant does not make payment within the required time frame, as long as the debt isn't disputed and it's above certain required amounts. 
Neil, appreciate this is often viewed as an option of last resort, given the seriousness of the consequences. And landlords might want to think carefully if they want to be associated with the winding up of the tenant before taking this final step. However, service of a statute demand might be enough pressure of itself to ensure that the tenant pays its rent, as they might not want to take the risk of the landlord proceeding to wind the tenant company up. Thanks, Kirsty. Mark, over to you. How does the position um, differ in Scotland if a landlord wishes to take action to pursue its unpaid rent? Thanks, Sarah. Most of what you and Kirsty have outlined applies similarly to Scotland. Rent deposits, guarantees, court actions for payments of debt and statutory demands are all available. The difference is um, the commercial rent arrears recovery equivalent in Scotland. We use a set of procedures called summary diligence. This means that where leases have been registered in the appropriate register, the books of council in session, and most commercial leases are registered there, they can be treated almost like a court judgment for the sums payable within them, primarily the rent. Sheriff officers or messengers at arms, officers of the court up here who are most closely analogous to the enforcement agents you mentioned in England, can be instructed to carry out various actions, including serving a charge for payment, which is a formal demand for payment within 14 days, which can be used as a basis for attachment, which I'll come on to, or as evidence um, of insolvency to begin a winding up process, as Kirsty mentioned. Secondly, it could be used um, to found arrestment, a process for freezing bank accounts or catching debts owed to the tenant by other parties. And finally, it could be used um, as the basis for attachment, which is the seizing of movable property belonging to the tenant to be auctioned to clear the debts if payment is not made. Thank you. There's some really interesting differences there, um, actually, which I think brings us on then to what the landlord might do if the tenant becomes subject to a formal insolvency procedure. So, Kirsty, maybe back to you. There are some obviously a number of insolvency procedures that we could talking about here, but I wonder whether we start with those that can be um, grouped together as what we call compromise arrangements. Sure, so there are three types of compromise arrangements uh, under English law, being a company volunteer arrangement, a scheme of arrangement and a restructuring plan. So obviously a landlord and a tenant can agree to a consensual compromise between themselves, but where that's not possible um, or broader compromises are needed, these procedures can be used to impose a compromise on a company's creditors or shareholders if certain required voting thresholds are met. So usually this is on the basis that the alternative for the company would be insolvency, with the argument being that the compromise arrangements offer the affected parties with a better result than that. When talking about a distressed situation with a tenant, you may be more likely to be looking at a company voluntary arrangement or a restructuring plan than a scheme of arrangement. Broadly, this is due to the voting requirements of the different procedures. So in any of these procedures, the directors generally retain control over the company um, unless they are subject to a separate procedure, such as administration, which we'll come on to. Uh, and the relevant creditors and shareholders will be bound if the required voting majorities are met. Or in the case of a restructuring plan, the court can use its discretion to approve the compromises, even if these thresholds haven't been met. So that's quite a powerful tool. Now, I'm sure that CVAs in particular will be something that a lot of our landlord listeners will be familiar with. Starting around 2008, we saw a wave of these being used by tenant companies with large leasehold portfolios to compromise their lease obligations. The compromises might, for instance, involve rent being reduced or changed to monthly, or the rent being reduced to zero and the landlord being offered its property back. 
So restructuring plans can be used in a similar way with the added feature that I mentioned earlier that the court can allow restructuring plans to be approved in certain circumstances, even if the required voting thresholds have not been met. Yes, and there certainly uh, was a flurry of company voluntary arrangements um, for, for, for quite a few years. But we did see landlords beginning to mobilise to challenge the, um, these procedures. Affected landlords do have the ability to challenge these compromise arrangements in court, um, but it is important that they do so within the required timeframes and satisfy the relevant procedural criteria to, to, to do that. For a company voluntary arrangement, there is a 28-day challenge period following approval of the arrangement whereby a landlord can issue a challenge on the basis that the CVA is unfairly prejudicial or that there's been a material um, irregularity in its proposal. Um, it's therefore important for a landlord to act swiftly if it believes that it does have a valid challenge. Otherwise, the CVA will generally contain provisions that are referred to as moratorium provisions, which will prevent creditor action in relation to the CVA. So, for example, the landlord will be prevented from suing for non-payment of rent that has been compromised. It is worth noting that landlords will retain their rights to forfeit the lease following the approval of the CVA, but um, their rights to do so will be fact-specific and will depend on the tenant's arguments um, for relief. In relation to a restructuring plan, the procedure is more court-based, as you mentioned, Kirsty. so any challenges should be raised by a landlord during the formal court procedure. The restructuring plan is likely to contain similar moratorium provisions as the CVA, restricting various landlord enforcement action post-approval, with the exception again of um, forfeiture. So it's important to take advice at an early stage when a landlord gets noticed that a restructuring plan is being proposed. Completely agree with all that, Sarah. The other point worth mentioning from a landlord perspective is, is, is if that compromise arrangement involves a substantive amendment to the landlord's lease terms, for instance, a reduction in rent, then there's a requirement to offer the landlord a break right, so the ability to take the lease back. This might be something the landlord wishes to do if it has other plans for the property or can find another tenant. However, the timeframes for exercising this break right will often be very tight, so landlords will need to act quite swiftly in making this decision. Thanks very much, Kirsty. Um, Mark, we've seen Scottish company voluntary um, arrangements too. So, for instance, House of Fraser was incorporated in Scotland. That was a very um, well-publicised case um, in, in recent years. Is there anything here to add um, from a Scottish perspective? Thanks, Erin. No, I don't think so. Everything that you and um, Kirsty have described would um, apply in Scotland in terms of CVAs. The law is very similar and we do all keep an eye out for what's going on south of the border. There's certainly been more cases down there and we're always interested when the landlords do club together and make these challenges to see how it pans out. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Um, so that brings us on then probably to other types of insolvency proceedings. Kirsty, before we get on to the more wide ranging procedures such as administration and liquidation, shall we touch very briefly um, on, on receivership? No problem, Sarah. So receivership is an insolvency process which will only really directly impact a specific asset. Typically, receivership involves the appointment of a receiver over that specific asset by a creditor with a fixed charge security over that asset. So that could be, for instance, a property. The receiver will take control over the asset and will usually take steps to sell that asset for the benefit of the secured creditor. So the receiver's principal duties and responsibilities are to the creditor who appointed it. However, they do have limited wider duties, for instance, to act in good faith. The directors will retain control of the company during a receivership. However, they will lose control over that specific asset. Interesting. So from a landlord's perspective, then they will find themselves having to deal with the receiver rather than the tenant's own managers if, 
if a receiver has been um, appointed over the property. Um, other than this, the landlord's rights are fairly unaffected from, um, by the appointment of a receiver. The landlord can still take all of its previous enforcement um, rights where applicable, um, for example, to sue for rent, to forfeit the lease or to exercise commercial rent arrears recovery. Mark, um, are there any differences in terms of receivership um, in Scotland? Thanks, Sarah. Yes, um, we don't actually have specific or fixed asset receivership in Scotland or an equivalent. So landlords in Scotland um, will be dealing more with the wide ranging insolvency procedures such as uh, liquidation and administration as we're about to come on to. Yes, that's a, um, a perfect segue there. So moving on then to some of these more fulsome insolvency procedures. Kirsty, would you mind giving us an overview of administration first? Sure. So administration is a process which provides a framework for a company to be rescued or reorganised or for its assets to be sold under the protection of a moratorium against creditor action. So when a company goes into administration, uh, an administrator is appointed who is essentially a qualified insolvency practitioner. The administrator will take over management of the company from the directors. So the directors will lose their powers to manage the company at this point. The administrators will have duties to creditors as a whole and will have wide ranging powers. For instance, they can run the company, sell the business or sell its assets and then wind down the business. They can then also distribute the returns to creditors. So administration is quite a flexible procedure with potentially different outcomes each time. Often when administrators are selling assets, the purchaser will cherry pick the assets it wishes to take based on its plans for the business, leaving behind unprofitable assets and various liabilities of the company and administration. If there are contractual restrictions to the sale of assets, for instance, assignment restrictions in a lease, an administrator will be bound by those. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, from a landlord's perspective, one of the key elements of administration is the moratorium preventing creditor action. This will prevent a landlord from taking the various enforcement actions that we've discussed earlier without the administrator's permission or a successful application to court. So the landlord will need consent to take action such as forfeiture, for example. If the um, administrator uses the property, though, for the purposes of the administration, it is required to pay the landlord rent for this period as an expense of the administration. This generally ranks in priority to payments to creditors, so the landlord's pre-administration arrears should not get worse if the property is used as part of the administration. This will be the case if the administrator is trading from the property or if the administrator has granted a licence to a purchaser to trade from the property until an assignment or a new lease can be negotiated with the landlord. If the administrator is not using the property, then rent and other sums will continue to go unpaid. The landlord may wish to contact the administrator for consent for the property to be returned in these circumstances. However, the landlord should be aware that, of course, taking the property back means that liability for rates revert back to the landlord if the property remains unoccupied. So it can be best to wait until the landlord has another tenant lined up before they do this. The moratorium does not affect a landlord's ability to pursue other parties, such as a guarantor, previous tenant or a subtenant, obviously provided those parties are not themselves in insolvency processes. Recourse may also be had to the rent deposit, um, depending on its terms. Otherwise, the landlord needs to make a claim in the administration for its loss under the lease. Unfortunately, the amount of creditors claiming in an administration can mean that creditors only receive a certain pence in the pound return for their liabilities, though. Um, Mark, are there any other considerations that a landlord of a Scottish property should bear in mind when facing a tenant in administration? 
Thanks, Sarah. The processes in Scotland are very similar, though we, of course, have our own rules, guidance and forms just to make sure that there's enough of a distinction between the jurisdictions. Um, however, one point that's useful for landlords to know is that there is a form of landlord security called hypotech in Scotland, which is used to allow the landlord to keep all property on a premises belonging to a tenant if there were arrears of rent when it entered into the insolvency process. It applies only after an insolvency event, such as administration or liquidation, and it applies automatically and means that tenant owned movables within the premises let should be secured um, so that their value can be used to pay any arrears of rent. Notwithstanding that it applies automatically, it's best practice for an inventory to be made up by on by or on behalf of the landlord and to be given to the insolvency practitioner and for them to be put on notice that the hypothec is being claimed or relied upon. The item secured must be owned by the tenant, so it will not apply to items owned by contractors or third parties that are on the premises or those that are subject to higher purchase. So it tends not to be necessarily as useful in retail where often the, the goods and stock are, are owned uh, by third parties or are owned on higher purchase, but more so in relation perhaps to restaurants um, where furniture or other equipment may be owned by the tenant and may have a value to them after the insolvency event. The difficulty with the security is that the landlord's power to sell has been abolished and while liquidators and administrators have to recognise the hypothèque, there is no requirement on them to take steps to sell and if there's no benefit to the wider body of creditors in doing so, then our experience is they won't always take steps to make a sale. And this can lead to a bit of a standoff between landlords and insolvency practitioners where nobody's actually dealing with the with items that have been left on the premises. But our experience is that usually there is a negotiation to be had so that any value in the items caught by the hypothetic can be realised and applied to the rent arrears for the landlord. Thanks very much, Mark, for setting um, for setting that out. Um, Kirsty, we frequently see administration sales taking place through um, a prepack. Um, would you mind giving us a bit of background on what prepacks are as a, as a sort of a next step? Sure. So in a prepack sale, the administrator would have been engaged in the background for a period before the company goes into administration. They would likely have been a accelerated marketing or valuation exercise during that period with a purchase of the business being found and then the sales documentation being agreed in an extremely short time frame before the administrators are appointed. The administrators are then appointed and almost immediately sign the sales documentation to affect the sale. So the benefits of this is that it avoids the administrator incurring the costs of running the business and it can often be seen as maximising value as there is less disruption to trading. Overnight, the business will simply go from being owned by one entity to another entity. So from an external perspective, this means that there's greater business continuity. However, prepacks have been the subject of criticism. Often they'll result in the original company's debts being left behind, together with everything else the purchase doesn't require going forwards. And this will probably be the same position if the sale had taken place sometime after the administrators were appointed. However, creditors left behind in a prepack might be more aggrieved and question the timeframes involved or perceive there to be like a lack of transparency or the expertive marketing exercise might be criticised. Thanks very much, Kirsty. And from a property perspective, there's often tidying up to do after a prepack sale. 
as you mentioned earlier, the, the administrators can't override the contractual provisions in the lease around assignments. There's often not sufficient time in a prepack to approach landlords to negotiate consent to assignments. So the administrators likely grant the purchaser a license to occupy the property, which purports to allow the purchaser to operate from the property while it enters into negotiations with the landlord for a new lease um, or for the assignment of the existing lease. How these negotiations progress often depend on the attractiveness of the property and the purchaser's covenant strength. Um, it goes without saying that a landlord of a desirable property has a stronger negotiating position than a landlord of a property um, where the purchaser isn't sure that they, that they really need it. Given how long assignment negotiations can take, this post-sale tidying up is often a feature in ordinary um, administration sales too, if consent to assignment can't be obtained by the administrator in advance. Which I think brings us on then to the final insolvency procedure being liquidation. So Kirsty, back to you if you wouldn't mind giving us um, a bit of an overview of this. Sure, so liquidation is essentially a terminal procedure to wind a company up. A liquidator will be appointed who will take control of the company, sell its assets and then distribute the proceeds to creditors. At the end of the liquidation, the company will be dissolved. So liquidators have fewer powers than an administrator, so it's very rare for a liquidator to trade a business, for instance. Generally, liquidation is a purely a mechanism to wind down the company's affairs, sell off its assets and settle credited claims. Creditors, including landlords, will need to claim in the liquidation for their loss. If the liquidation is an insolvent liquidation, uh, unfortunately, as Sarah mentioned with the administration, it's likely that the amount of creditors claiming can mean that the creditors only receive a certain pence in the pound return for their liabilities. So there are a few different types of liquidation and a landlord's rights will depend on the type of liquidation being used. So the first type of liquidation is a compulsory liquidation. Now we mentioned earlier that a creditor can present a winding up petition where it can establish that a company is unable to pay its debts. If successful, the outcome of this would be compulsory liquidation, which is a form of liquidation instigated by a court order. The second type of liquidation is voluntary liquidation, which is commenced by a resolution being passed by the shareholders of the company. And voluntary liquidations can be either solvent or insolvent, depending on the circumstances. If the voluntary arrangement, voluntary liquidation happens to be solvent, the landlord can be repaid in full in respect of the tenant's company's liabilities. Very much, Kirsty. Um, as you mentioned, the landlord's rights will depend on the type of liquidation being used. So in a compulsory liquidation, there is an automatic moratorium similar to the moratorium we discussed earlier in the context of, um, of an admin. The landlord enforcement, enforcement action will generally be prevented unless the liquidator or the, um, a court consents. This is not automatically the case where there's a voluntary liquidation, so the landlord will generally retain its enforcement rights in a voluntary liquidation. However, a liquidator or other creditor can apply to court to prevent any enforcement action from proceeding. The other important point to note from a landlord's perspective is that the liquidator in either type of liquidation can disclaim a lease. This means that the liquidator on behalf of the tenant can essentially unilaterally end the lease. This is not possible in the other types of insolvency procedures that we've covered. It can impact the landlord by leaving it with an empty property and of course the rates liability for that property. Mark, is there anything that you would like to add or mention in the context of liquidation from a Scottish perspective? Thanks, Sarah. Um, again, our process is very similar other than some technical differences in the rules and forms. 
But the main difference I wanted to highlight with liquidation was on that last point that you made um, about disclaiming leases. The liquidator in Scottish liquidations has no such right to unilaterally terminate a lease. It's not included in that section of the legislation. Where the liquidation is English, the liquidator can still go through the disclaiming process, but that will not terminate the lease in Scotland without further action to legally bring it to an end, whether through agreement between the parties or one of the other contractual mechanisms for termination, such as irritancy that we discussed earlier. There is still, therefore, the possibility that a landlord in Scotland would benefit from a further period without rates and other liabilities, notwithstanding the disclaimer in an English-based liquidation. So interesting. Thank you, Mark. Um, well, really, that brings us probably to the end of this podcast, but I, hopefully it's given our listeners a good overview of the options a landlord has when a tenant fails to pay rent or is subject to insolvency proceedings with all the nuances north and south of the border. Um, as always, of course, as lawyers, we have to say we would recommend that landlords in these situations do, of course, take legal advice as soon as possible. Um, the procedural requirements, as we've sort of discussed, can be very nuanced. That just leaves me then to sign off by saying thank you very much to Kirsty and to Mark for your input. It's been extremely useful. That's no problem, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank um, the Association of Real Estate um, Funds for arranging the production of this podcast. If any of our listeners do have any questions, please do feel free to get in touch with any one of us for further information. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.